0: Well, good morning. I hope you enjoyed the beautiful weather we've had these last few days. I know we had a lot of activities going on. We had a couple of days of golf outings that uh, several of us were able to participate in. I know we had Pumpkin Patch or Pumpkin Patch uh, yesterday. and uh, So a lot going on this time of the year. But it's good to come together this morning in in the the house of the Lord and together as the body of Christ and, and just remember our commitment to Him and remember our commitment to one another and encourage each other and and exhort one another. And so uh, I hope you will find reason for that today. So there was a man named Haruna, and um, when he was born, his father, um, Muhammadu Abdul Rahim, was disappointed. Disappointed both with his wife and with his new son because Haruna, out of nine children, was the only one born with a cleft palate. And so, Muhammadu was so upset that he left his family for another woman. So, not long after that, Muhammadu himself was in a terrible accident and found himself bedridden for some eight months. And this new wife that he had taken left him, and she claimed she would rather be known as a divorcee than a widow, thinking that he was probably on his way to an early death. And so, feeling rejected now, Muhammadu Abdul Rahim began to realize how his son must have felt. Thinking back over how he had treated his son, ostracizing him for something that was beyond his control, his son's control. And so, after contemplating this and after apologizing to his wife and to his son, Muhammadu Abdul Rahim slowly regained his strength. And soon after, his son was able to undergo a, a cleft operation. Uh, with the love and support of his entire family, back together again. And so, now, being grateful for his family and for his son, uh, Muhammadu Abdul Rahim told the medical staff, he said, what you are doing is the work of God, because you're taking care of people who cannot take care of themselves, those who need help and have no means by which to help themselves. And so we have an idiom that we would use for for situations like this with Muhammadu. We would say that he had a change of heart. Or as in, we're talking about these few weeks here, he did a 180, right? He did a turnaround. And so when Jesus started his ministry, we read this in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach this message. Repent or turn around for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so Jesus uses here in this, uh, this, this sentence, he uses a verb form of repentance, which means to change one's mind, to change your mind or, or to uh, uh, more formally, to heartily amend with abhorrence your past sins. And so repentance is not just a change of mind, but it's this in intention, this, this hatred of the way you used to act or used to live. And so you have a change of heart you set your heart in a different direction. And so it is an intentional change or turning away from sin. It's turning to God. And it's not turning away from the ability to sin because we are going to always have that ability as long as we're in this flesh, we're in this skin on this earth. But repentance is this shifting of the heart From ignoring sin to being saddened and and deeply saddened by our inability to not sin. It's always getting in our own way, right? And so the change comes in not wanting to sin. And the Apostle Paul struggled with this. And he expresses this struggle that we experience. He wrote a letter to Christians around Rome. And we know it as Romans. And in chapter 7 of that letter in verse 15, he says, For I don't understand what I'm doing. For I do not do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my flesh. For I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer me but sin that lives in me. And so isn't that the struggle? Isn't that the most common connection between every human being? It's this struggle with sin. And so some continue to fight that battle each and every day, putting up a a good fight, resisting to the best of our ability. And in certain or other aspects of their lives, many have surrendered to sin. They've just given up. No longer fighting. It's too much. And so from the beginning, God has made it clear that that choice is ours. He's given us that choice. You remember back in the beginning when, when hate towards his brother was growing in the heart of Cain. And God spoke to him and He warned him that sin is crouching at your door. The door of his heart. He said, but sin desires you. But you must rule over it. You must take control of yourself. And so, but Cain instead surrendered to sin and he killed his brother, right? And so, we don't necessarily see it in the life of Cain, but repentance is found throughout Scripture. Old Testament all the way to New Testament. Genesis to Acts, right? Or Genesis to Maps, I mean. And so, Isaiah gives us a great picture of the necessity of repentance. And so, he he tells Israel, the Word of God comes through the prophet, he tells Israel that repentance and rest is your salvation. Repentance and rest is your salvation. So he shows that salvation depends upon repentance. And so change brought through repentance only comes to those who will humble themselves because no one full of themselves can be filled with the Spirit. No one full of themselves and full of pride can repent. There's no room for it. And so repentance acknowledges our own sinfulness and this desperate need we have for forgiveness. So when a person is full of themselves, there's no room for grace to be received. And Paul would also write in a letter known as Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. And there was no one, I would argue, more qualified to speak of the change brought through repentance than the man who wrote those words. And so Saul of Tarsus was a godly man. He was a godly man, excelled in everything that he applied himself to. He was a member of the Pharisee party of the Jews. Uh, The Pharisees were very careful students of the the Hebrew Bible. And Saul was was able to to quote extensively from not only the Hebrew Bible, but also using the the, the new version, the the Greek translation of that Hebrew Bible, the modern translation of his day. And so he would have been described growing up as as being bright and and ambitious as a child and by his own account, as an adult, one of the best Jews and one of the, the best Pharisees of his generation. And so Today, we would say he was a good church-going boy. He was raised in a good home, a child with the best upbringing maybe, a student of the famous teacher Gamaliel. Not everybody got to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. That was a a high-level privilege that Paul found himself obtaining. He was a Roman citizen trained in the best Jewish schools, and yet this pious man was bent on the destruction of believers in Jesus. And so for so much religion that he got right, Saul found himself on the wrong side of God. Let's hear that. You can have so much religion, so right, and still find yourself on the wrong side of God. So only a few short years had passed from from the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus when you have this this self-righteous, uncompromising, religious fanatic assisting in the systematic murder of one of Christianity's earliest messengers, that this godly man named Stephen. And so we read about that in Acts also. And so Luke punctuates Saul's involvement in this, this murderous act, and he has a chilling comment. As Luke retells this for us, a chilling comment in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Saul agreed completely with killing him. Saul had no reservations whatsoever about the death of this man, Stephen. The death, being stoned to death, of this man, Stephen. Saul thought he was doing the right thing. He could justify everything he did in the name of God. And yet... (laughs) He would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul writes, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He thought he was right. Good conscience. And so a change brought through repentance only comes to those who humble themselves. This man Saul had a long way down from his high horse. And so let's, let's read this story. Let's look at the story of this conversion here. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now on that day, that's the, the, the day, the, the time when Stephen was stoned to death, as, as this begins, this persecution time. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Samaria. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. They wept greatly for this man. But Saul was trying to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Jump over chapter 9 and verse 1. And meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and he requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, either men or women, anybody who professed this Jesus of Nazareth, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he said, Who are you, Lord? And he replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But stand up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. And now the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless, because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Can you imagine? I hear this. I see Saul on the ground and he's acting crazy, but I don't know what's going on. So Saul got up from the ground, but although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by his hand, his companions brought him into Damascus. And for three days he could not see. And he neither ate nor drank anything. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he replied, Here I am, Lord. Then the Lord told him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at Judas's house... Now, this is Judas was a common name. This is not Judas the uh, apostle who betrayed Jesus because Judas is now dead. He hanged himself, right? This is another Judas. At Judas's house, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him, so that he may see again. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. So I'm thinking if I'm Ananias right now, God has just told me, Saul has in a vision seen a man named Ananias who's going to come to him. I'd be like, Lord, I think you got the wrong Ananias, right? There's more than one Ananias in this city. It can't be me. Because I've heard some stuff about this man, what he's done. To people just like me. And here he has authority from the chief priest to imprison all who call on your name. Paul has the full authority of the Jewish religious enforcement. Nobody can stand in his way. But the Lord said to him, go. Because this man is my chosen instrument. To carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. And, and not only is this not written emphatically. I can't imagine God speaking in any other way than I would speak to a child who is worried about doing something that I've instructed them to do or, or, or not understanding what I've asked them to do. And while there have been times in my life where the answer has been, you just go do it. I cannot see that here in Scripture. I see God saying, go, go, it's okay, it's okay, go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. Go, because I'm taking care of this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house and he placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, his strength returned. And for several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, This man is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and were saying, Isn't this the man who was in Jerusalem ravaging all those who were calling on this name and, and who had come here to bring them as prisoners to the chief priests? Isn't that him? But Saul became more and more capable and was causing alarm among the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So let me say this, Saul and Paul are the same fella. It's the same dude. So Saul was his, his, his Jewish or Hebrew name that he was given at birth. That's what his mama called him. That's what his friends would have called him growing up and all. Paul is a Greek form of this Hebrew name. And because Saul was appointed apostle to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, the non-Hebrews, and the fact that his letters in the New Testament were written in Greek, or the Greek language, the Gentile language, then Paul is the form that we read throughout the New Testament. And so... Paul regards himself as having been before his conversion. He was a violent man, a hostile man, but he did it. He was a man of good conscience. He slept well at night thinking he was doing the right thing. Conscience is a motivator to do what one thinks is right. And this is true for the believer or the non-believer. Paul would write about that in, in Romans, the first chapter or two there. However, for my conscience to be an adequate guide in my daily life, I've got to have a desire to please God more than pleasing, competing desires that are going on in my heart. And I must know what God wants me to do. I've got to know His will as it's revealed in Scriptures. And see, this is where Paul got hung up. That's where he got stuck. He knew the Scriptures. He knew then. And you know, Paul Paul had the Old Testament Scriptures because he hadn't written the New Testament yet, right? And so he he had the the Old Testament Scriptures. The Law of Moses. He knew the Scriptures. He knew the prophecies about the Messiah, this Deliverer of of Israel. But perhaps Paul knew it too well. You ever know something too well? You know something so well that you're ignorant about it? (laughs) You've been in that situation? There's a saying that what you believe to be true is true for you and nothing else is. What you believe is true, is true for you, and nothing else is, right? Because pride can mask itself in righteousness, which then becomes self-righteousness. I'm right. You're wrong. End of discussion. Okay? So humility, though, humility allows for faith in Scriptures. I believe that, that Scripture is divinely inspired Word of God but also allows for the admission that in my human limitations, I might be either communicating the wrong message, perhaps, or perhaps how I hear what I'm communicating is is not exactly what's coming out. And so I'm totally missing the mark on how I'm communicating. Pride says I'm right, and if you don't agree with me, then the problem is with you and not with me. And so before Damascus, Saul could not have imagined how he was wrong. There's no way I'm wrong. He would have argued that to his death. And so he had the best intentions. His intention was to to purify God's kingdom and to stand firmly opposed to anyone who would go up against him. But what he failed to see in his ignorance was how he himself was the greatest opposition to God's kingdom. And so there's another side to that self-righteous coin, and that's when we think we got it all figured out. I think I got this figured out. And maybe not in an arrogant way, maybe not in an I-know-better-than-you way, but maybe I got this all figured out in a way that I don't need to spend as much time in the Bible anymore. I know what I know what it says, right? Maybe I don't need to hear God's Spirit anymore. I've heard what His Spirit says because maybe we don't expect to be pricked in our heart anymore because I've been a Christian a long time. What's God going to show me He hadn't already shown me? I got this. In the beginning, God, right? Jesus is the Son of God. Love God, love your neighbor, right? Two greatest commandments. God's going to win, devil's going to lose. That sums it all up, right? That's all I need to know. I got this. But the writer of Hebrews cautions Christians That even though we are invited into God's rest, that through Christ, we must not rest from doing the will of God. And so to engage with the will of God is to be active, moving forward in our faith while we look towards eternity. Hebrews chapter 4 says this in verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. See, the, the, in Christ, we have rest. But we can't sit back like we're on a conveyor belt and wait to arrive at it. We are still moving towards that rest that we have been assured of in Christ. The Christian life does not stop when the water is dried from our skin. It keeps moving lest we perish following the example of others' disobedience. He's writing about those who who forsook their faith, forsook Christ. And so for the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So if the Word of God is, is, is alive and active, that means that God continues to work on us. But we've got to show up for the job. We've still got to show up because repentance takes work. It takes work on our part because we may be very comfortable in the way we think. We may be very comfortable in the way we've been living. And as Mark Twain rightly said, nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits, right? Nothing needs more reforming than everybody else, Not me, <laughs> And so repentance acknowledges our own sinfulness and our own desperate need for forgiveness. Because when a person is full of themselves, there's no room for grace to be received. And there's certainly no thought of extending grace to others when we're full of ourselves. And so God knew it was going to take an aha moment for someone like Saul to come to his senses. So nothing short of a Damascus Road encounter, this blinding slap to his ego. And so that nothing short of that is going to snap Saul out of his prideful prison and open his ears and open his heart to the living, active Word of God. And sometimes that's what it takes for us too. And there can be no turning back unless first there is a conviction that you're going the wrong way. Who wants to turn around if they think they're going the wrong way? <laughs> Just ask any man you've ever gone on a trip with. I'm not asking for directions. I'm going the right way, Right? God's waving this red flag. If you have this conviction, this conviction, be thankful. Because God is waving His red flag directing you to the proper path. Something's wrong. You're thinking wrong. That's pricking your conscience. And Before men and women can come to the cross of Christ and have their sins forgiven, they must be convicted of their sins. And that convicting work is done by the Holy Spirit. It's done upon our soul. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit works through life-changing circumstances, like Saul on the road to Damascus. He suffered blindness for three days until you know, Ananias was sent, to, to, and Saul was ready to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the Messiah. And sometimes the Holy Spirit works through the written Word. As we engage with the will of God and our conscience is cut, by that double-edged sword. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit works through the church as we relate to one another, as we interact with one another. We hold each other accountable. We hold each other accountable for living as professed disciples of Christ. And you read in Hebrews 3.13 that we are to exhort one another each day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. And so the writer of Hebrews is is encouraging the church to be the church. Church be church. That is, he's telling us something of what it means to live in in a community with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there's this responsibility that's laid upon all of us once we're added to God's family of faith. And it's here that we learn what it is and when we're to do it and why it's so important. And so the writer of Hebrews encourages that. And the original word here means strong encouragement, exhort, strong encouragement. And this is the same word that Jesus used to describe the spirit that he would send after he ascended back to the father, the comforter or the helper, the strong encourager. And so this word is used commonplace in Greek literature of that day, speaking of, of a naval or, or a military commander who puts strength into his sailors or strength into his soldiers. And so if you've ever played sports, you know how a coach is. You know, you've got to, 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 to build them up and get them ready and, and pump them up and make them believe and lead them out there and sometimes push them. And so believers are expected to exercise this daily the cheering ministry for, for each other, to other Christians. And so we're not meant to be a burden. We're not meant to be nitpicking at all the things that we think other people are doing wrong or could be doing better. And we're not meant to sit in judgment of one another either. Judgment's reserved for God. We're called to be cheerleaders, encouragers. So we're to mimic the traits of the Holy Spirit. And we're to be a help. And to be an encouragement. And this is what makes repentance a blessing and not an act of shame. See, if, we, if we, we were people of condemnation, if we were nitpickers, then who wants to repent? Who wants to confess? Because where does that leave me? That leaves me in the spotlight for everybody else to come kick me around because of the choices that I made. So what makes repentance a blessing is the encouragement and the support that we get from one another. And so we're to encourage one another to live in Christ, think as Christ, love as Christ, and to make choices in view of Christ. So the author of Hebrews says that without this constant encouragement, without this exhortation, we're prone to the hardness of the deceitfulness of sin. Without encouraging encouraging reminder of the Gospel that's held up for us every single day by each other, from within and without, then we're likely to instead believe the lies of the devil. I mean, where's the loudest voice coming from? We become discouraged, callous to biblical truth. And then we end up building up these walls with Satan's lies and those walls block out the light of Christ. And so it's our God-given calling as Christians to warn one another, warn our brothers and our sisters from falling into this darkness. And even in the act of looking outside of ourselves to to help others is one of the main ways that we prevent ourselves from stumbling and from slipping is get our focus off of ourselves and on to caring for others. And so it must have been extraordinarily hard for Saul to have been accepted into the assembly. I can only imagine believers as, as, as Saul approached after Damascus, especially in light of his known... Participation in Christian arrests and pretty much approval and and stamp on, on, on some murders and torturing that had been going on? Imagine hearing he'd become a Christian. <laughs> well, Christian ain't what he used to be, is it? Yeah. You know? How do you get past that? How do you get past someone like that who says and and is trying to show that their life has changed? How do you do it? Acts chapter nine and verse twenty-six, we find that when Saul arrived in Jerusalem. He attempted to associate with the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. How can you blame them? Because they did not believe that he was a disciple. That water didn't change him. Nothing changed about him. How could it change him? But Barnabas. Took Saul brought him to the apostles and related to them how he had seen the Lord on the road that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus, Saul had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he was staying with them, the, the, the disciples, associating openly with them in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was speaking and debating with the Greek speaking Jews, but they were trying to kill him. And when the brothers found out about this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria experienced peace and thus was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and the church increased in numbers. See, encouragement shrouds repentance, not in the sackcloth of shame but in robes of celebration. That's what encouragement does. Encouragement makes it easier to sacrifice our own desires for advancement of the kingdom of God. And encouragement makes it easier to live the Christian life. Because without encouragement, I mean, the fact is, it doesn't take long for for, for life to feel pointless and burdensome. And without encouragement, we can be overwhelmed by the very real pains of life. And yet, without encouragement, we feel unloved. We can begin to think that God is a liar or perhaps is unconcerned with our, our welfare. Maybe God doesn't care. Without encouragement, both the Apostle Paul and the church might have struggled against each other instead of striving with one another. And so the Bible tells us to encourage one another, to remind each other of the truth that God loves us, God equips us, that That we are treasured and that our struggles are worth it. And if you've been living, if you've been acting, if you've been believing or teaching otherwise, then Scripture reminds you how God calls you to repent. To accept a change of heart. Change from within. Because if it takes a blinding experience along the road of life, then He just might provide that too for the sake of your soul. And if He does, and when He does, I exhort the church to be there with you every step of the way. Perhaps there's something in your life this morning that you need to repent of. You need to change. You need to turn around. Change your mind. Change your actions. Change your way of looking at. Change your way of relating to. God calls you to turn around and come back to Him. Back to His way. The way of Christ. The only way that leads to eternal life. And this morning as we assemble together, we are here to encourage one another. And we will do that and pray with you and pray for you. And walk together, struggle together, strive together as children of God's kingdom. God's eternal kingdom and His kingdom come that we experience today. So if we can help you in any way, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. Will you come as we stand? You are my strength.